This is the Wagging Tales podcast. This is the podcast that tells the stories of animals and the professionals that work with them so that we can learn from their experiences and do the best we can for our animals. I'm your host, Fraser Noble, the owner and behavioural specialist at Noble Canine. I'm Jay Quack. I am a behavioural dog trainer with Noble Canine as well. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Wagging Tail podcast. On this episode, we've got Dr. Francis Cabana, who's one of the top wildlife nutritionists in Asia. With a PhD in wildlife nutrition at Oxford Brookes University, multiple published academic publications, as well as a wealth of experience working through zoos throughout the world, designing and overseeing the nutritional health of the animals there, Dr. Francis now turns his expertise to our companion animals, endeavouring to help pet owners give their loved animals the best nutrition they possibly can. So welcome to the podcast, Francis. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Good to have you. Welcome, uh, Dr. Francis. So it's it's not exactly a very common uh, career route you've, you've picked here. No, can you tell us how you got into wildlife nutrition? Um, well, I've been working in zoos uh, most of my life, and I started off as a as a zookeeper, and I really learned how to take care of animals and the the five different domains of welfare, which are their environment, their behavior, their nutrition, their physical health, and their mental. So those are the five domains. Right. Uh, and you learn a little bit about each of them, uh, at least in your, your learning and your things walking, your your zoos. And the nutrition domain always, it was kind of left on its own. And it, and, and, and it was really defined by, well, make sure they have food, make sure they're not hungry. Um, and that's about that's it. That's the bare minimum. <laughs> it wasn't really, yeah, it's exactly. It's defined by what not to do. It's not defined on what you should be doing. Right. So that really got me curious and really made me focus into nutrition welfare and nutrition sciences themselves. So as I was a zookeeper, and then I went more into research and the scientific route of zoology, and naturally it just brought me to feeding ecology and how to feed our animals better, which, you know what? Of course I'm biased. I love nutrition. <laughs> I will, until the day I die, I will fight and say that nutrition is the basic domain of welfare because it affects the animal's behavior. It affects their health. It affects their how they feel, which is their mental um, domain. It affects how they'll use their habitat or their exhibit or their house, depending on what animal you're talking about. It affects everything. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'll get the most bang for my buck if I go into nutrition. Right, right. So how long were you a zookeeper before you started focusing more on uh, being an animal nutritionist? Four years um, as a pure zookeeper, like nothing beyond that. Uh, really just picking up poop and uh, feeding animals and not really having much say in what goes on, but asking a lot of questions. And uh, so this was on and off, you know, ongoing with my studies while I was doing my my bachelor's degree in zoology. And then I went into the scientific route after I finished my, uh, I guess, right up to my master's. So all the way till now. All the way till now, yeah. (laughs) So Francis, um, what actually made you do the transition? to nutrition oh there was this um so there's a this animal called a kawati have you ever heard of that before i'm gonna google that right now 
How do you spell yeah, it? Yeah, Google that. Yeah, so it's in the family of the raccoons. So they're they're kind of like a slender, sassy raccoon that live in South America. And they're very social. They're very nice, very cute. And I remember one day I asked my senior keeper, my senior zookeeper, and I was like, why are we feeding them cottage cheese? Just, just tell me why. And then her answer to me was, because the vet said so. So there was no... There was no reason. There was no understanding as to why we were doing what we were doing. So then I looked at her right in the eyes and I said, I'm going to get my own answer to that question. And then because of this lady, which, by the way, is lovely. She's, she's a very nice person. But I was not satisfied. And I thought, I'm going to make my whole career out of this just to answer this one question. Because we need people in this field who will be able to make proper diets for animals, whether they're in zoos or whether they're for dogs and cats. Uh, and birds or whatever. So I that was the the changing moment when something clicked in my head. So basically, it was because there was no cottage cheese tree in South America. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's because of that. It's because cottage cheese does not grow on trees in South America. It's a very strange, uh, strange um, sort of choice. Well, now throughout my career, now I realize, okay, well they pay, they put it in for protein fine. It's high protein, it's low fat. But when you look at the Kowatis diet in the wild, they eat a little bit of everything. They're very omnivorous. So, But they love to eat insects. They like the insects and eggs or maybe small, whatever little animals they can catch. So you can give real animal protein through insects. You don't need to give cottage cheese. That's the part that eluded me and never understood why that was the decision. So is it based, would it be correct to say that the, the vet was looking at the macronutrients, but not at the micronutrients, and that was why the decision was made? That is a pretty good guess. And I think it, it, I, I'd be surprised if, if the vet looked very into detail into the nutrients. I think it was just, oh, well, cottage cheese is high in protein, given that. So did I just give a Jim Bro answer? <laughs> uh, the answer you gave was probably a bit more advanced than a Jim Bro. Uh, even for us. Uh, recently, I've been seeing a lot, a lot of studies about how insects provide us good nutrients as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, in, insects are, are great sources, great and sustainable sources of protein. And depending on what the insects are fed on, they can actually be really good sources of omega-3 fatty acids as well. I mean, it's, it's very slow to take off because people eating insects in any form, quite difficult for a lot of uh, Westerners or uh, I'm going to say developed countries to kind of tune into that. But in, you know, in about a quarter of the world, insects is a very normal part of their diet. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing some work up in northern Iraq and uh, fried insects and grilled insects, that was just part of it. Like, yeah. That was just out with the buffet when you went into yeah. the canteen. So the next thing really is you've done all that work in the zoos, working with wildlife and things like that. How did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to work with domestic animals as well? Well, it, it kind of just happened, like most things in life. It kind of just happened because I was working at Singapore Zoo uh, in Mandai. Um, I loved my job. It was the most challenging, yet the best part of my life thus far. Uh, and yeah, it, it was it was crazy, but amazing. And... I was able to uh, build a network, meet a lot of people in Singapore, and one of them just bought over a pet food company, uh, and they needed someone to look over the formulas. And then uh, because their best friend worked at the zoo with me, 
Then they introduced me, started talking. I make sure that it was legal. <laughs> MOM, if you're listening, this was all legal because <laughs> they didn't pay me. They didn't pay me. It was just a, I was like an advisor. And then I was able to start working with them uh, and look at the recipes. And I kind of just got into it. And I guess that maybe I have an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spark in me because I really like that aspect of control and the aspect of producing a product and then seeing how it affects dogs and cats and uh, yeah, I really, really like that. And then that snowballed into working with more vets for dogs and cat cases and even doing um, some nutrition uh, diet reviews for some dogs and cats that are sick and vets don't really know what to do with them anymore. Uh, so we really just snowballed. And after my journey at Singapore Zoo ended, then uh, it was logical to just make this pet food thing, my, uh, you know, full time. Uh, and the rest is history. It's a, it's a really interesting point you said there about when vets aren't sure what to advise their clients, yeah, yeah. it's a good thing to have somebody like a nutritionist there. And that's something that I come across regularly as well, is that people say, oh, we were told to do this by the vet. But going to a vet for nutrition advice is like going to your GP for nutrition advice. Yeah. And going to your vet for behavioral advice is like going to your GP for psychological advice. It's like yeah. there's... People think that with your animals, it's a very one-stop shop, but that's really not the case. Like there's people that specialize in different areas. Like we've got physical rehab specialists as well with dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. So they're like the dog and cat physiotherapists. And I just wish that more people understood that so that they would get the best help that they can for their animals. Yeah. And, but it really comes down to your network as well, especially in Singapore, there is no animal nutritionist. There's no PhD animal nutritionist. Anyone can just take a, a little six-hour certificate course and call themselves a nutritionist. It's not a it's not a protected term. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna specify PhD nutritionist yeah. um, for animals. So be, because it doesn't really exist in Singapore. Yeah. So most vets that that are cognizant that they're out of their death for a particular case, most of the time they would refer them to. Um, online nutritionists overseas, like in Australia or America or something, which is fine. But there there is one in Singapore and it's me. <laughs> um, Glad to have you. <laughs> happy to be here. Uh, and it, yeah, what you mentioned is like going to going to a vet is like going to your GP. And the sentiment of that is right on because they need to learn so much about everything. It's not that the vets don't know. It's that even more than an actual medical GP, they're not just having to look at the medical side of one animal, whether, say, homo sapien. They're having to look at the medical side of multiple different animals. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's a big ask for them. And then you're asking them about nutrition and physiotherapy and psychology and behavioral science and cognitive abilities. I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask of one person. A lot. Yeah. And it's changing so fast as well. Like, I don't, I don't even know how they can keep up with all the new medicine, medications, the new sciences for all the domains. It's Yeah, being a vet is amazing. It's wild. And I mean, and I'm sure it's the same in your game, but in our game, if you look at uh, like the cognitive science and the behavioral understanding of dogs and cats and domestic animals over the last 10, 15 years, it's absolutely wild, the development. I mean, yeah. it, it just, it's completely revolutionary and i'm sure it's the same in nutrition and in medical side 
as well. So I think it's important that people understand that as well. Yeah, well, imagine when I was working in, in zoos and I had to keep track of thousands of, of species. And <laughs> just in Singapore Zoo, it was, I don't want to say a lie, I, I think it was 4,500 species. And um, the contract I just did at Toronto Zoo, that was like another thousand species. And you need to keep track and read all these papers on the nutrition or physiology, metabolism, et cetera, of all of the different, of basically everything, everything that comes out, you got to read it. Thankfully, wildlife nutrition moves at a much slower pace than, than domestic animal. So uh, you got to read those too, because ultimately all the knowledge comes from domesticated animals. That's where all the, the knowledge on animal nutrition comes from. And then we extrapolate for wild animals. I guess that makes it easier to keep tabs on the domestic side of things then. Yeah, it's actually a little bit more streamlined for me. <laughs> I'm not saying easier. I'm just saying streamlined. Yeah, it's some something I always find myself saying is that just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy. Oh, I like that. Way back when I was a kid and my grandparents had dogs or cats or, or any kind of domestic animals, even, even non-domestic animals. I remember my granddad had, had a snake at home, <laughs> but then this was uh, way back in the 90s, right? they only fed like whatever was available, you know, but have you noticed like changes in, in the food market since then? Oh yeah. Uh, the, the pet food market took a long time to evolve and to change, but now it's undergoing, I call it a revolution. Um, I think dog and cat owners, well, maybe just pet owners in general, they are becoming more and more astute in what they want to give to their pet. Um, and they're paying more attention and doing more of their own research. But pet food companies have a lot of money and they're not stupid at all. And the marketing is like, yeah, there should be a case study on pet food marketing in every marketing school ever because the tricks that they pull is truly amazing. And to be honest, like some of the things I see, I think it, this is brilliant marketing. And you know what? They deserve to sell this food just because the marketing is so brilliant. Whether it's good or not for the dog, some of them may or may not care. But the marketing to make you think that it's good for your dog is crazy. And it doesn't help that pet food is not really well. Um, there's no legislation, especially in Singapore. So it's very like you can. You can pretty much put. You can play with words on the packaging, especially in social media. It's so easy to say pretty much anything just to get people to I mean like I, I I'm not gonna name names I am not gonna name names but there was this one brand that I got into a fight on Instagram with because they were saying that they their food was gently cooked and it was highly digestible and then I said oh okay well what temperature are you cooking your food and they're like 120 degrees Celsius I said excuse me that is not gentle and they're like yes it's very gentle I said no you're just you're just saying a word <laughs> Like if you put your hand in 120 degree steam, not water, it's steam at that point, you're going to get burned. Like don't tell me that that's gentle. And that changes the nutrition and the, the digestibility. So then I asked them, well, show me your digestibility assay results then. Of course, they didn't send anything over. And there's no one there to tell them like you're not allowed to do this. Stop it. So that means that as people are getting smarter, well, so is the marketing. So I don't know which one is out competing the other at this point, but they're both keeping up for sure. But that's why now we're seeing a lot more fresh food in the market. Freeze-dried has completely exploded. 
Um, and I think we're seeing some decrease in pure kibbles um, and canned food, or kibbles are using different words like air dried. You know, it makes you think it makes you think that it's less processed. Though, yeah, exactly. Even though there's not the little difference, or they could air dry it for just a minute, and then they, they extruded it right before. Like there's just no rules around this thing, so it's so difficult for for a consumer for pet owners to really know what's best. So, uh, Dr. Francis, what's your take on vet prescribed diets for your companion animals? Wow, that is a loaded question. Um, I think that they serve a very important purpose in the market. Um, there's a lot of information for for it and against it. Um, I have I can't think off the top of my head of any study that just directly shows that they're effective. Um, now, I may be completely wrong, and if I am, I apologize, but I don't mean any like having a study with one ingredient that shows, oh, this is helpful for diabetes or whatever. It's like this entire food, give it to 600 dogs that have diabetes or kidney disease or whatever, and then just tell me it works. As far as I know, there's no actual study. And even calling it prescription uh, is weird because there's no medication inside. So I don't even know if that's like in some countries, apparently that's not even allowed. Uh, okay. And I'm just saying apparently. Um, but just because it's being sold by your vet, which of course you trust, doesn't necessarily mean that it's right all the time. Um, of course, we have a lot of trust in them. And again, the vets want what what's best. They're your, they're your they're on your pet health journey with you, but at the same time, that's what they learned in school. So I I don't blame them at all. Even though I don't always agree with some cases and um, some specific foods for for different health issues um, that vets like to, to to sell, but I don't I don't blame them. Um, and some of them are are starting to see alternatives and seeing good results. And a lot of them, specifically holistic veterinarians, they, they they maybe look outside the box a little bit. And that's all that I can really say <laughs> without angering you. Um, <laughs> I, I, just, I just really hope that more vets are, yeah, tr try and look outside the box a little bit or look at, look at, run their numbers, run their own numbers out of a thousand dogs that you sell, you know, the, the, the kidney or whatever diet to, then like how, how many of them live two years past that? Um, mm. You know, they, they actually have so. Yeah, exactly, and they have so much data. If they just did a retrospective analysis, I think things would change. Yeah. So, what do you think the driving factors are that that move the changes in the companion animal food market? Um, I think there's more competition, so you're seeing more uh, smaller companies. Uh, you're seeing more um, disrupting. Um, companies that are being funded um, and it's making people think and wonder, oh, we've been doing this this whole time. Is this the, the right way to feed the dogs and cats? Because now there's so many more options than there ever was. Uh, and not just new options of more kinds of kibble, but like new, entirely new kinds of ways to, to feed your dogs and cats, like uh, fresh food, like I was saying before, frozen, you know, um, air dried whatever and now you're talking about some are some foods are entirely human grade and some are just normal animal grade so it, it just all these new terms and these new options are appearing 
So a lot of people are asking themselves questions, which means they're going to educate themselves. So I think that's what's really pushing the the change in consumers, which then leads to more and more products being created and marketing also changing. So how would you say the general public, the general pet owner, could ensure that they're making the correct choices? Like, How do we know which brands are doing the best for our dogs and cats rather than just going for the prettiest marketing? Yeah, I mean, I could talk about a, like a week nonstop on how to choose the right pet food. Uh, it's it's a it's a huge question that I can't answer in like in even in an hour. But the tips I'm gonna give you and to everyone listening is ask questions. Um, if 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 the the food you're feeding says chicken byproduct, which could be anything, it could be ovum, it could be intestines, it could be feet, uh, it could be feathers, like it could be anything. So if your pet food says that, but your pet likes it, and like, you don't see a reason to change, but you have a right to know what your pets are eating. So email the company and say, this is currently batch, blah, blah, blah. Like you look at the, the batch number that was printed on the bag and you say, what byproducts were in my bag? They should have that information somewhere. Um, and if they don't answer you, or they don't have information, well, question if you trust this company then. It's all about trust. Uh, it, I can t- I can say whatever I want here, but if you trust a company that does not follow my regu- my my suggestions, then you're still going to feed it. So it, it really their marketing is trying to sell trust. Um, and if you don't have someone you can talk to, if you don't have someone you can reach out, and they don't like walk this pet health journey with you, why would you trust them? And then why would you give them your money? Um, so I think number one is ask all the questions, even if you want to know what preservatives are using what um how, what's the exact temperature that your food is prepared in where is it prepared like anything like that ask them questions via email that's what they have these portals for and then you'll see if they reply to you or not um so that's my biggest suggestion is ask all the questions in the world it sounds like that topic might be a good second podcast for you to be honest <laughs> it should yeah how to pick the right food then we can go into actual like specifics yeah definitely the other thing i would uh, strongly suggest is usually the less processed, the better, right? Like that's for humans. It's the same for our pets. So I'm just, I'm going to be like deliberately vague right now and just say the less processed, the better. So if you're feeding a kibble or a canned food, which first of all, the ingredients are not human grade. So they're rendered, which means that they're cooked at extremely high temperatures to be dried. That's already cooked once at like more than hundred degrees. And then they're mixed together and then they're extruded to make the kibble, which means it's cooked at another 300 degrees. Like the the proteins and the fats that are in there are not going to be the same going in and going out. And it reduces digestibility. You have a lot of these like side byproducts that are created like AGEs, advanced glycation end products, which have been tied to uh, neurological diseases, tied to cancer, stuff like that. And that happens when you cook carbs and proteins together and Guess what? 300 degrees? Yeah, that's more than enough to produce all these AGEs. Um, That's just one little specific example. But these happen when food is processed and you have low quality ingredients. There's no point asking them what is the quality of ingredient because every every single company on the planet is going to tell you, oh, we use the highest quality ingredients. We only use the best. (laughs) So there's no point asking that question because there's no legal way for them to actually tell you. Only thing you can ask is, is this human grade or not? That's one thing that they are not allowed to lie about. 
Um, and um, the other thing you can check is their production methods, stuff like that. So of course, I'm a big advocate for feeding whole foods, fresh, uh, whether it's raw or whether it's gently cooked. Um, freeze dried is not bad as well. Again, the least, the less processed, the better. Of course, you need to make sure that it's properly balanced and you have all the you know the nutrients that you need and stuff. You can't just give a raw steak every day. That's not appropriate. But general rule of thumb, the less processed, the better. So that leads me on to this then. Even when you're trying to eat healthy yourself, sometimes you've got a bad month and uh, you don't have the money to spend on all the good foods. Is there a way that we can feed our pets decent diets without breaking the budget i mean i'm not complaining for myself but i've got three dogs all of whom are over 30 kilograms so that's a lot of food that comes out every every week every month so if i were to go for fresh food every single meal i would be spending an additional salary just on dog food so is there a way that we can make it more affordable for people? Because I know I'm not the only one thinking that. Absolutely. No, you're totally right. And there's there's two ways to look at this. The first way to look at it is your the immediate money you're spending now, right? So you're, how, how much are you spending in your monthly budget? So in order to decrease that, I agree, everyone does the best they can uh, and everyone has different means. So if you can afford uh, only kibbles, that's fine. Expensive kibble doesn't necessarily mean better. So give whatever kibble that agrees with your dog's digestive system and they like the taste. But you can mix in some of your table scraps. I know when when we were kids, a lot of people were saying, don't give table food to your dog, it's bad. But it's really not. Um, Of course, don't give toxic foods like onions and, you know, grapes and raisins. But if you have some lightly seasoned or or not seasoned at all chicken or or pork or beef whatever yes give that mix it with the kibble and then give it to your pet if you have vegetables left over mix it um fruit as a snack that's great and that those are things you're already buying because they're they're leftovers right so it's no additional cost to you um the most famous study that kind of started the whole fresh food movement showed that as long as you give like leafy greens three times a week, 20% of the diet, you will get 90% reduction in cancer markers or something like that. Um, Or if you're giving yellow or orange uh, fruits, then you get like 70% reduction. So just adding your leftovers really will make a huge difference to your your pet's diet. And I'm a big fan of high quality protein, which processed pet food is is never, no matter what they say, it's not, it's just too processed. So adding a little bit of meat that's left over, eggs are fantastic, a little bit of fish. Um, yeah, I think that's just a really economical way to make your kibbles or your candle go a little bit further. Or the other way to look at it is long-term. So if you're going to factor in all the vet bills that you'll ever have to pay for your dogs, then do you think you'll be paying more vet bills at the end of your dog's life? Um, if they're eating something that's like McDonald's every day, or will you be having less vet bills that will probably be a lot further in your dog's life because they'll live longer if you're giving maybe a more expensive but complete balanced, fresh, non-processed diet. Um, and the only piece of evidence that I can that I can suggest there is 
Dr. Connor Brady, which is one of the founding fathers of the science behind feeding fresh food. He worked at a, um, a dog shelter and he changed all the food from kibble over to, I believe he gave raw, he gave a balanced raw diet. And he said that the vet costs decreased by 80% for the whole shelter. Wow. The, the, yeah, so there definitely is experiences and stories to back that up. Of course, in terms of research and, you know, peer-reviewed publication, you, you need to, dogs need to live their entire lives and you need to have a study group who's on kibble compared to that, which these studies are on are happening uh, in Scandinavia, but it'll take time before we have studies to prove exactly that. But yeah, overall, you can look at the cost in short term or long term. So I know that a lot of the shelters um, here in Singapore, they've got a mixture of kibble, rice, yeah. chicken, beef, things like Whatever's that. Whatever's donated, right? Whatever they get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and what I will say is that anything that's donated is great for these dogs because otherwise, guess what? They don't have anything. I mean, just for clarity, when I was saying about my dogs, I give them kibble with some fresh food on top. Now, whether that's fresh food that's home cooked or fresh food that we've bought frozen and then defrosted, yeah. you know, that that's how I do it. So, I mean, disagree with me if you feel you should, but... I feel it's important not to shame people into thinking that they've got to only do this expensive high-end diet for their pets because realistically, even if you're not struggling in general, it, it's a lot of money and you don't do that for yourself. Um, I mean, some people will do it for their pets. I just sort of feel like we don't want to be shaming anyone, you know? Absolutely. I could not agree more. And, um, you know, it's, I start, I start a lot of my talks and presentations with a bad joke, like a dad joke, which is on a first date, you're not supposed to talk about religion, politics, and what you feed your dog. And I really think that that is true 90% of the time, because for some reason, talking about your pet's nutrition is so emotionally charged. And it's very difficult to have like a, a rational and just, just a discussion without somehow feeling like one is insulting the other because, well, I feed raw or, well, I feed what my vet prescribed or, you know, wh whatever it is, it usually leads to some tension and it's quite hard to diffuse that once it's there. Um, and and I, I really don't know why it's so polarized. Um, I don't think there's one perfect diet. I think every dog is different and the perfect diet for that dog at that time in their life will be different. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar to humans, though. I mean, if you you start talking about your diet with humans, it's it can become very charged very quickly. You know, oh, I do keto. Oh, no, I'm a vegan. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. You know, <laughs> people get super angry about it. And I guess that's kind of the same sort of thing, which leads me to something that I want to talk about a little bit. What's your opinion on all these different types of diets, grain-free, raw versus home-cooked versus cooked by a company versus mm. freeze-dried versus dry food. Like, There's all these different aspects. Just talk a little bit about what's your opinion on grain-free versus grains, raw versus cooked, freeze-dried versus dry, air-dried, all that stuff. Okay, yeah, sure. So uh, grain-free versus ones that have grain, uh, this is the one of the stupidest media battles I've ever seen in my life. It's so dumb. 
Um, so grain-free is seen as more premium because they don't have cheap grains. Instead, they use lentils and pulses and stuff like that, which are more expensive. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's more protein because maybe they put less meat. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better because it, there's still carbs in there. If grain-free meant low carb, then I would have said, oh, maybe you've got something there, but it's not. Most of the time it's the same amount of carbs or maybe just 5% less. Um, so they're definitely not all created equal. You could have some grain-free that are much better, but maybe you even have a one with grain that is still better than a grain-free one. So it just that definition does not tell me much. It's kind of a disaster. And a lot of this happened because of uh, the DCM, like all these dogs that had dilated cardiomyopathy because they were eating a brand or a few brands actually of uh, grain-free foods and their dogs got heart issues. And this was like the, the moment to strike, you know, from a lot of different pet food companies who didn't have grain-free they're like, see, if you give grain-free, it's bad. So now when vets have patients with heart disease, they'll tell them add grains into their diet, which is nonsense. I'm sorry, it, it's every vet listening, this is nonsense. And I'm going to say it and I'm fine. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. The grains have nothing to do with preventing heart disease. It's because what the grains were replaced with, even if that was related but it's not even 100% proven that they got that disease because of the replacement. So right now we don't really, we still don't know what happened. Nothing has been proven conclusively. And yet people are using that in order to make you buy the very, very popular pet foods that have grain inside. So I don't be part of this discussion. They could both be okay. They could both be terrible. I'm sorry. It's, it's kind of like um, some some things they, they say about cancer as well, isn't it? Like everything causes cancer nowadays. And then they just try to scare you into not using your their competitors' things if they just find one strand of, of fabricated evidence that, oh, this this thing, it caused cancer. Oh my God, help. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to. It could just be correlated, which is not causation. And then you'd be like, well, that's enough. <laughs> quick, quick, make new stories about it. And this one really went viral. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Well, that's kind of a marketing tool in itself, isn't it? You've got the the article-based or the news-based marketing techniques that a lot of people use. I mean, how many times have you clicked on an article thinking, oh, that sounds interesting? You read this five-minute article, and then at the end, it's like, so buy petfood.co.uk. And you're kind of like, what was that just all one big advert? How much of that was BS? And you've yeah. no idea. Yeah, well, you don't know until you read it. And, and even there, you may miss it. You might miss where it says this article was written by or was funded by. or And social media is the same. When you sell your influencers, are they being paid to have their dog eat that kind of food? So that it's everywhere now. And that's also what makes it more and more complicated for people to untangle truths. Well, I know that's a big problem in the health and fitness industry. All of these Instagram influencers and they're being paid thousands and thousands by these supplement companies to say, hey, this is going to make you look like this. And you're going to like, so it's not the 12 years of strict diet and training every day. It's just no. that supplement. Yeah, cool. <laughs> it's like Jared yes. from Subway. <laughs> Jared, so let's leave Jared from Subway well alone. Let's just brisk past that one nicely and move on to raw versus cooked. This is something that I'm actually quite interested in. I used to feed, when I just had Athos, I used to feed raw. 
And then when I got RMS, we did Raw for a while. Um, and then when we got Porthos, it didn't agree with him, so I switched all of them because giving one dog a different diet from the other two dogs is just oh. a pain in the butt, if I'm yeah. honest. Yeah. So give us a little bit of a spiel on that one because that's something I'm really interested in. Yeah, this is kind of like the, the, the debate of the moment. Um, I have no huge difference of opinion between raw or gently cooked. And by gently cooked, I mean up to 75 degrees. Um, I have no difference of opinion because the latest published research shows that the difference in digestibility is 2 to 4%. Uh, and there's like four different studies that have that have different numbers. So I just made an average. 2 to 4%, of course, it does depend on the diet itself. But overall, it's not a huge difference in digestibility. And you're still using whole foods that are either non-processed or very lightly processed. It's not enough to change a lot of the, the, the protein and the fat structures. Um, so uh, of course, raw is, is more digestible, but if your dog doesn't like it or if his digestive system doesn't get used to it, which does happen, then it's fine. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to fight with anyone. Just give gently cooked. And that way you're sure the bacteria is dead. Um, and Honestly, if you feel more comfortable, if you feel safer feeding them, then just do it. You don't need to get in fights with people who say raw is the best food. And if you don't feed raw, you don't love your pet. And if you feed cooked, then it's ruining all the nutrition. Like that's that's just not true. Like I said, every dog is different. Some does some do great on raw, a lot of cats, especially. And if your cat likes raw and does great on it, amazing, do it. And if they don't, that's fine. You can gently cook it a little bit. Your main focus should be feeding food that your dog likes that gives nice hard black poops and has all the nutrients that they need. That should be your main focus, no matter like regardless of what it is. Um, so if you're doing your home cooked at home, that's fine. Just, I recommend you, you cook it medium rare. So the middle is a little bit pink or very pink. So for the home cooks, right? What would you recommend like the method of cooking would be? Would it be like boiling, steaming, grilling, oven? Um, good question. So if, if you do uh, oven or if you do some grilling, uh, I that's fine. Again, as long as it's medium rare uh, and make sure there's no like burnt bits, no charred bits, because that's been proven to, to contribute to the chances of getting cancer for you and for your pets, by the way. Uh, so make sure there's no char on the meat. But yeah, medium rare. Boiling is not recommended just because, especially if you have like pork, which is high in B vitamins, some of that will leach out for sure. Uh, and I find it harder to, I find it harder to get a medium rare piece of meat by boiling, unless you're blanching it, which is you just drop it in for literally 20 seconds and then take it out. That's, that's, that's fine. But yeah, many different ways. Cool. So I think that kind of brings us to a good conclusion of what we were talking about here, but we do have some listener questions if that's okay with you, Francis. Yes, of course. I love that. Okay, so the first one comes from uh, Kevin in Singapore. He's asking, how do I know I have chosen a good brand of food for their dogs? That's, a, that's a, again, a very big question, Kevin. Uh, all I can tell you for now is, first, if your dog likes the taste, if your dog's coat is the color it should be, if his skin is nice and moisturized and it doesn't have dry skin, um, if his poops are once or twice a day and they are black, hard, and don't smell very much, 
then you're already onto something that works well with your dog's digestive system. Um, so that's that should be your, your first thing, right? Does my dog like it? And does he digest it well? That should be your number one. Um, two, I think, again, as less processed as you can afford, whether it's home cooked, whether it's a commercial raw or gently cooked diet, or whether you're mixing some fresh ingredients in with kibble or canned food, you know, whatever works for you. Um, try and get some vegetables in there if you're feeding kibble and stuff like 20% of the of, of the bowl could be any kind of vegetables and fruits every day. That's like a good um, rule of thumb. I just want to yeah. jump in just here because you've mentioned twice now hard black poops. And I know that yeah. there's going to be people picking up as well. But I'll be right in saying that when you're saying hard, you mean firm. You don't mean like hard. Like a rock. Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I mean firm. I mean firm, yes. But I mean, it should... Not like a rock, but it sh it should be it should resist. Like if you drop it, it should hold its shape. It should be easy to pick up. It should be you can kick it. You can kick it around actually. Okay, okay. I don't advise anybody kicks around dog poop. Like, that's a bad <laughs> idea. I'm just saying. Depends where you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now just touch on the color because my understanding was always a deep brown, but you're saying black. Is there a reason deep brown, deep, deep brown slash black. Yeah, uh, both of those are, are good. Um, you're right. I probably shouldn't say black because then people will really look for like, you know, charcoal color. Uh, yeah, dark brown. You don't want it to be yellow or beige or green. Uh, you, you really want it to be dark. I guess I should say dark. You want it to be dark. Food. I just want to jump on that just a little bit because I know that there's going to be people listening that are going to be like hard and black. No, hold on. What? So, yeah, it's good to clarify that, that it's... Firm and dark. Firm and dark. Firm and dark. Yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, and Kevin, you also want to make sure that your dog is the ideal body weight. Um, so if your dog is very cute but chubby, maybe you want to reassess the food or the amount of food or the treats that you're giving. So that's, you know, part of the overall diet. Or if they're underweight and they can't put uh, any weight on, then you also probably want to look at the diet again. Um okay. Yeah, and we all know we like our cats and our dogs to be a little bit fat because it's cute. But latest research shows that obese dogs and cats will live one to two years less than if they were the ideal body weight. That so, kind of goes for almost all animals, to be fair. Yeah. Us. Us. yeah. <laughs> now, I don't want to come across as defensive here when I say this. Um, anybody that knows me is going to be like, yeah, you're being a bit defensive. BMI is not always the best way of telling if you're in the best of shape. I mean, my BMI says I'm grossly obese, but I would like to think I'm not. So surely different breeds and different mixes will have different body compositions. So is there any way to sort of uh, think of that when we're looking at what's a healthy weight for our dogs? Is there a visual way? Like I was always told, as long as you can feel the ribs easily, things like that but not yeah. see them right yeah yeah the seeing part is a bit weird because it depends on their coat so like for like huskies you'll never see their you'll never see their ribs pretty much um but you're right you need to be able to feel the ribs lightly so example if you um make a fist and then you feel your knuckles on on the hand that's a fist if the ribs feel like that then your dog is too thin now if you lay your hand down flat and you feel the knuckles there, 
that is what a healthy, ideal conditioned dog or cat should feel like. So you can barely feel them. You can feel them a little bit, feel the distance between, but they're not covered. And if you just feel like the, the fat below your thumb on the inside of your palm, that if the ribs feel like that, then sorry, you got a, you got a fat cat or a fat puppy. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't want that. You want to test it right now. <laughs> yeah, test it on your... <laughs> And yes, uh, while you're getting your dog, okay. uh, something else you can look at is body condition scoring. So that's looking at the covering of fat and muscle on your dog or cat. And you have these guides that exist. Actually, you can Google them, put body condition scoring guide, dog, cat. A lot of them are made by pet food companies, but they're fine. Like Purina has a really good one for cats. Um, yeah, they're, they're completely fine to use. But again, depending on your breed, it may be completely different and you may not be able to see anything. So then you need to like, you know, pet them and palpate them a little bit. Just for the record, Porthos is all good. All good, okay. Yeah. He looks very happy about that as well. Yeah, right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Next one. Let's go into the next one. Um, do you know what? Let's just jump onto this one from Karen in Hong Kong. Because she's asked a very hot topic question. Ooh. Is it possible to have a vegan cat? Now, address the cat one, but I also think it's a good idea to address the dog one because a lot of people think that one answer answers both. And dogs and cats are quite different animals. Yeah. Um, so my answer is the same for both. Um, so the question was, is it possible, right? Karen, you're asking, is it possible? Yes, the answer is yes, it's possible. So they are vegan um commercial pet foods that exist on the market for dogs and cats. And the reason why that's possible is because they add the missing amino acids and fatty acids and uh, minerals and vitamins. They add synthetics version into the food. Um, so is it possible? Absolutely. Because you can, you know, you can buy powders of anything nowadays. So we know that cats need taurine. Well, you can add taurine powder and add into the vegan food that you make at home, or that's what they put in the kibbles or the vegan cat, wet food or canned food. So is it possible? Yeah. But should you do it? Well, I'm not going to say yes or no, because I think a lot of this is ethical. So if it follows your personal ethics, um, you can find vegan pet food that will meet their minimum requirements. Will they thrive? I don't know. And I cannot say for sure that they will. I don't think they'll do very different than a commercial kibble that is made with meat. Um, just because we know that those are on the lower end of digestibility as well. But if you're asking if it's natural, then the answer is no, for sure. Uh, no, it's not natural and they didn't evolve to be on that diet. So the only reason that it would be made possible is by synthetic additions for a lot of these um, things that are missing in vegan diets. And it's similar for dogs. It's a bit easier for dogs because the requirements are not as strict as as the, the the strict carnivores that cats are. Um, so with dogs, you can probably make it at home with maybe less than, I want to say six different supplements. Um, cats making it at home though, that's going to be really difficult. I don't know if they would eat it. So making it at home for cats, that's, I don't recommend you do that because I'm too worried you're going to get it wrong and your cat's going to get sick. Uh, for your dog, you could probably find a, okay recipe or just send me an email and I can help you make a recipe for your dog at home if you really want to feed them vegan. Um, but again, it's not natural. 
So it's not their ancestral diet. It's not what they evolved to eat. Uh, and also because you're giving a lot of plants, you're going to have a lot of carbs, which is not ideal. You, ideally, you don't want a diet that's very high in carbs because then that leads to a lot of metabolic stresses on their organs, which is also why I don't recommend kibbles or canned food because they're 30 to 60% carbs. Could you argue that that's a similar case for humans? Now, when I'm answering, asking this, I am aware that you are a vegan yourself. Um, <laughs> Damn it. You told, I, I didn't want you to tell anyone. It's my secret. <laughs> Do you know what? You might be the only vegan on the planet that wants to keep that a secret. I do want to keep it a secret. It's no one's business. I don't want to. I, I don't want to bother anyone. It's. It makes me happy and it makes me feel good about myself. And that's. You know that's what? All I, can't, I kind of want to hug you just for that. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the whole story of how do you know that one of your friends is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you the same. Well, they need to tell you because if not, they're going to eat whatever you give them, which is probably meat and cheese. Like they have to tell you. <laughs> they don't I'm need to tell you. Them. They do CrossFit. They do that though. <laughs> Uh, everyone who does CrossFit tells you they do CrossFit. Yeah, sure. half of them are vegan. I'm gonna. I think there's a lot of meat eaters, a lot of meatheads in CrossFit for sure. Well, there's definitely a lot of meatheads around. Around, <laughs> yeah. But, you pointed at you. but I do want to see, hear you talking about if it's similar to humans, humans. in a way. Well, I'm okay. Um, in terms of the carbs, right? In terms of vegans, yeah, because oh. being a vegan is not really an ancestral diet for Homo sapiens, is it? Because um, it's the it's the meat that developed our brains or magic mushrooms, depending if you agree with the stone date theory. Uh, no, no, the, there's. You're upset about the magic mushrooms research, or the meat. The meat. There's as much research going that. A growing social structure within um, primordial humans is what pushed for brains to to become larger because of the complex social systems. So you have some papers that will say it's the meat, then you have equivalent number of papers that will tell you it's a social uh, system. So when we know based on fossil data that about 10% of the calories were from meat, like don't tell me that that's going to change your brain. 10% of your calories from meat. But is it know. calories or the mic micronutrients that are going to be helping change it? The papers that I read specify 10% of the calories were from meat. That may be, that, this may be getting a little bit too deep into the human element for some people. Yeah, and again, I'm not a human nutritionist. Um, so that's why like, I, I, I'm happy to talk about what I've read and what I've learned, but I don't, don't take my word for it. Well, look, all I can tell you is that when I'm on... A, my own vegan diet and i i mean i'm an animal nutritionist so i know how to balance the nutrients that i, I was going to say yeah that helps me because, so like I, you have a lot of people now who are like oh i'm recovering from being a vegan and say like, well i'm sorry girl but you didn't do it well and i say girl with a you because it could be a guy or a girl but you just didn't do it properly and then you end up feeling like crap and that's awful but it's not necessarily because it was a vegan diet anyway the healthiest diet that we know of for humans according to science, is not vegan. It's closely related to the Mediterranean diet, which is very high in plants, very, very high in plants, and some fish. It's not high in meat at all. So um, I think that you need to get those animal omega-3s. That's very important. And there's no plant equivalent because it, it's not ancestral for humans to go and eat algae, I don't think. Although some algae has very good sources of omega-3, but that's just, you know we're not going to do that. 
Um, oh, yeah. So I think not yet, not yet. At least not in the form that it's currently in. It's nothing like. Okay, we'll crack on. Okay, and the last question for the episode, Francis says, from Gina in California. Is it true that kibble helps with my dog's dental health? Does crunching, crunchy kibble brush their teeth? Well, let's look. Everyone, go and get your go and get a cookie. Okay, go open your cup, whatever, like a chocolate chip, you know, chips ahoy cookie, right? Because it's hard, it's crunchy, it it's very high in carbs, just like your dog's kibble. And now I want you to bite it, like bite, take a bite, chew it, and then swallow it without like drinking water or anything. And then go in the mirror and smile. Do you want to brush your teeth or do you think your teeth are fine? You can go to sleep. Gina. What do you think, Gina? <laughs> no, um, this is a very common question. And the answer 100% is no. Kibbles do not clean your dog or cat's teeth. They are made of exact that cause dental issues, which are carbs. Uh, and they break up into little powders that could get stuck in many different places, in, you know, between the teeth and the gums, blah, blah, blah. A hundred percent no. Now, there is no diet that is miraculous. Even giving a 90% raw meat diet will doesn't mean you will, your, your pet will not get dental issues. So brushing teeth regularly is good regardless. Uh, feeding raw meaty bones has been proven to help decrease calculus by 90% in dogs and cats. Uh, and if you don't want to give raw meaty bones, again, that's fine. Brush your, your pet's teeth using coconut oil, a little bit of sodium bicarbonate. Um, and then you just, you know, you get those like finger brushes and you just brush your teeth a little bit. Or you can just buy doggy or cat toothpaste that probably smell like liver or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really the best thing. And there are a lot of dental treats right like dental chews and dental sticks and um most of them do nothing most of them do nothing because they're also made of carbs uh if you read the ingredient they're made of starch and amylose and stuff and that softens with the saliva over time so it's it's really to make you think that oh my dog is chewing and skinning his teeth but it's still filled with the same stuff now you have some kibbles and some things that have um additives in it to ha- that change the ph now, the pH may help because it will prevent bacteria from clinging onto the teeth or it will help to kill some bacteria. But regardless, if you're giving oral care or whatever, like you don't need to do that. You could just brush your dog or cat's teeth. I hope that helps, Gina. Ooh, oh, wait, wait, sorry. You just made me think of one more thing. So, you know, um, rawhide, rawhide treats? Yeah. Yeah, so that used to, that was really popular back then before you have all these kind of new generation treats that you have now. Uh, and I even gave that to my dog when I was a kid just because, yeah, everyone was doing it. And that's a perfect example of just because everyone is doing it doesn't mean it's good. So the reason why they're white is because they're bleached, they're chemically treated with ingredients that are known carcinogens. They even affect some of their um, neurons and it's terrible for their digestion. It affects the uh, latest research that came out like a month or two ago proves that giving rawhide will significantly affect the gut microbiome and the gut health of your dog or cat. Do not give rawhide. It doesn't even work for the teeth because it becomes soft after it's in contact with saliva. Stop it. It should be banned. It should be illegal. Don't do it. I think that's a very good place to end on. I'm sure we'll have you back on again, Francis, because there's just a wealth of knowledge that I feel more people should know about. One of the things we didn't touch on that we're not going to now because it's such a big question, but we will in the future, is the link between 
nutrition and behaviour. And that's wow. something that I think between the two of us will probably go down quite a rabbit hole, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, um, that would be a really fun discussion. But I think that's one best kept for the future so that this doesn't end up being a 20-hour podcast. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Francis, um, one important thing for all our listeners is, of course, how can they contact you? The easiest way to contact me will be through social media. Um, and I'm not going to share my personal Instagram. I think instead you can contact the Pet Cubes social media. So that's at Pet Cubes on all the different platforms, whether it's um, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok very soon. Um, so Pet Cubes is the fresh, fit, the, the fresh food company that, that I work at. I formulate all the diets there. So we have raw food and we have gently cooked food for dogs and cats. It's entirely made in Singapore. It's an entirely Singaporean company. And if you have any questions whatsoever, you just message those socials and I will see the questions and I'll answer you directly. Even if it's not a question about pet cubes, it's fine. I'm happy to help with nutrition overall um, and just help your dog or cat have a really long, happy, healthy life. But definitely look at our website as well, petcubes.com. See if there's any things you'd like to try and then ask me some questions about it. And at this point, I'm just going to jump in and shamelessly plug here because Francis is going to be doing some consultation with Noble Canine. Um, I very rarely plug Noble Canine on the podcast, even though most people know that it's basically sponsored the podcast completely. Um, but... Francis is going to be doing online consultations for anybody that needs it with regard to nutrition for their dogs or cats. So Francis, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, thanks so much for bringing that up. Very excited for this new partnership. Anytime you, you're feeding a home cooked diet or whatever kind of diet for your, for your pet, you just want to make sure that it's okay. Um, or maybe something's not quite right and you would like some help to reformulate the diet or what should you be feeding then it's a perfect opportunity for you to book a diet review with me via Noble Canine. And the only thing I can say is, as long as your dog doesn't have a critical health issue, then I really recommend you go via your vet. But anything else, especially when it has to do with behavioral issues, um, or just really that to have for you to have the confidence that your dog or cat has every single nutrient that it needs for long term health, then yeah, booking a consult will be the best thing you can do. Okay, absolutely fantastic. Thank you. And all of that information will be in the show notes as well. So people can access that to get a hold of Dr. Francis to have a check out of uh, Pet Cubes, or to find out more about how to get a consultation through us. And I won't just sell Pet Cubes, I promise. If you want a home cooked diet, I will help formulate <laughs> the home cooked diet. <laughs> That's actually a very good point. Yeah, it's very important. Okay, well, thank you very much. And we'll uh, talk to you again soon.